Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, we're taking the conversation out of our kitchen and into the newly renovated Town Hall Seattle. We were there in June for a conversation between Serious Eats founder Ed Levine and one of his star contributors, Kenji Lopez-Alt. They were in town promoting Ed's new memoir, Serious Eater, a frank and insightful look at his career and the founding of one of the most influential food websites out there. They talk about trying to make a website work in this ever-changing internet landscape, what the work environment at Serious Eats is like, and how life in an internet startup affected Ed's relationships outside of work. Here's Ed Levine and Kenji Lopez-Alt and Serious Eater. Wow, man, we better say something cosmically smart here, Kenji. <laughs> so we, yesterday, Ed and I were in, we, we were in L.A. a week ago. We were in San Francisco um, a little while ago, and then we were in Portland yesterday. And this was a kind of experience I was kind of used to when I was living in New York and still working at Serious Eats and would go out regularly with Ed Levine. But what happened was we went to Canard, which is a restaurant done by uh, Gabriel Rucker's, Rucker's restaurant. He has Le Pigeon. It's... Um, Great Portland chef. If you're ever in Portland, you need to go to Canard for steam burgers. I know they sound weird, but they're not. They're delicious. Yeah, so they're like ground meat where he mixes um, French onion soup mix in with them and then smashes them and then puts them onto these Hawaiian rolls with this pickle relish and then puts them in a, a steamer and steams them for like 30 seconds and they're really delicious. We were there and then Gabriel Rucker, the chef, comes um, comes out and he sees Ed and he's, he's like, Ed Levine. Apparently, I think the last time Ed was there was like 12 years ago. It's true. Um, then Gabriel sat at our table and like, it, yeah, it was it was as if we were all old friends. And he was talking about how Ed Levine had changed his career when he was younger. And then later that day, we went to um, a pizza, Scholl's, which is a very good pizza. Um, and Brian Spangler, the only owner there, also hadn't seen Ed for 12 years. No, but same thing, came weird. over they and started, really sat down and started talking memories. about this. And apparently Ed had changed his career at some point, too. Anyhow, this is this is like a common thing you find when you hang out with Ed Levine is that when you go out to eat, you're going to find people, no matter where you go, whatever restaurant you walk into, there's someone who's going to walk up and be like, Ed, like, oh, you you changed my career when um, by doing th- this thing you did. Um, Until Kenji worked for me for a few years, then we'd go into restaurants and they'd say, who's the big guy with Kenji? <laughs> <laughs> I guess my question for you is when you were starting Serious Eats, what was the media landscape like, both for sure. online and for print media, and why? And I guess why Serious Seats at that time? You know, for this, me, and this was in two thousand two thousand six. Or actually, I started blogging in two thousand five. So for me, I was a reasonably successful freelance writer. I was writing for the Times. I wrote two editions of New York Eats. I wrote a a book. <laughs> which my friend Tom Douglas told me is the worst selling book he's ever written, a book called Tom's Big Dinners with Tom Douglas, who is a good friend who we just had a drink with. And um, Yeah, it happens in Seattle too. Yeah, <laughs> it happens in Seattle too, it's true. So what happened was I was coming off, a, I thought I was going to be starting a competitor to the Food Network for, for MTV Networks. It was called It was called, it was called Gusto. Gusto. And at the last second, they decided not to go forward with it. But in doing Gusto, I started reading a lot of food blogs. 
And the one thing I realized about food blogs was you could write about whatever you wanted to write about and no one could say no. And so I love that. I love the idea that there was no more pitching. I just had to pitch myself. So this was what a pitch meeting at Serious Eats is like. Ed, I want to do a story on fried clams. Great idea, Ed. Do it. <laughs> you know, so that was, that was really the impetus for Serious Eats. It was like I could get rid of the gatekeepers because, and Kenji was a freelance writer too, you spend as much time selling your ideas for stories as you do writing them. When you start blogging, as I did, it was like, this is the coolest thing ever. You write whatever you want to write, you hit send, and it flies all over the world in real time. It was almost alchemical. It was magical. And so I was just so taken by it, so taken by it, that I didn't realize what a ridiculous business proposition it was. And so, because all the other food bloggers at the time were, a lot of them came out of the tech world. Elise Bauer from Simply Recipes worked at Apple. Heidi Swanson from 101 Cookbooks had also come out. I think she and her sister had started a tech company that they'd sold. David Leibovitz wasn't a technologist, but he was the pastry chef at Chez Panisse. And then there was me. I was just a guy who had a lot of ideas and a lot of passion and thought that people would sort of read what I had to write, that I could gather people like Kenji, and then all of a sudden I could have a business. I don't know if any of you remember, but like in 2005, this was right when the Huffington Post was getting started, right? So it was like, oh, blogs are the future of publishing. And I put every one of those quotes in my business plan. You know, it was like, <laughs> blogs were the future of publishing. I drank the Kool-Aid. And my first chief technology officer was David Karp, who became the founder of Tumblr. So it's not in his bio because it was too <laughs> insignificant. <laughs> but it's the truth. I'm telling you it's the truth. It was just the greatest thing. And the weird thing was we started with an advertiser through a set of coincidences. American Express was our launch advertiser in right. 2006. So it's like, how hard could this be? You know, I have American Express and I haven't even started yet. Then it was like, oh, but American Express takes six months to pay their bills. I didn't really figure this out. So it was, it was this roller coaster ride because the highs, the creative highs were amazing and the lows were not so amazing. Right. And you could, <laughs> I have a terrible poker face, okay? I'm gonna say that right now. <laughs> My son says I have the worst poker face in the world. And so Kenji <laughs> says that yeah, everyone can- <laughs> We could tell how um, how much we owed the bank and on any given day by how, like if you took a graph of Ed's shoulders shoulder height as he walked into the walked into the office that morning, it just tracked our finances. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I also, I don't know why. I just figured if I wrote projections in the business plan that they would, that's that what they would, would happen. 
<laughs> that projections were reality. I didn't realize that business plans are basically semi-fictional, right? My brother, who was my first investor, said that the numbers in a business plan have to be aggressive but plausible. <laughs> so that, that was my mantra for all, for everything that was in the business plan. It was like, oh, and you know, in year three, we're gonna have $40 million in sales. Because that was the other thing. I couldn't really admit to myself or investors that really what I wanted their money for was that so I could have my dream job. Because people don't write you $100,000 checks so you can have your dream job. Or So when you started Serious Seats, where was money coming from? Who was it going to? Well, How again, were people getting paid? Yeah. Were, well, advertisers took a long, much longer to pay because they had all the leverage, right? And in fact, they still often can take much longer pay. Fortunately, the, the people who bought Serious Seats are much better business people than I am. Some of them are here tonight. Thank you. <laughs> but it was always a problem. So cash flow was always a problem. You know, and what I didn't figure was that, yes, big media businesses, old media businesses like the New York Times and Condé Nast, yes, they were struggling with the internet to make sense of it, right? Because first of all, the whole idea that content was free was anathema to Condé Nast or the New right. York Times, right? It's like, content can't be free. And we were like, oh, content can be free and, and we'll just aggregate a big enough audience to sell it to advertisers. And again, there was all this talk in the business press about all the money migrating to the web, which was true, but it quickly became clear that that wasn't going to be the answer to Sirius Eats' continuing set of fiscal problems. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was just and, like... And is that because the, the way the money was getting to content producers was broken or that... Yeah, and also it was... Or it was there was a, a bunch of things. One, it was the law of supply and demand. There were quickly more impressions, ad impressions available online and there were advertisers that were interested. So that drove the price of advertising down, mm -hmm. right? And that was the other thing that the reason the New York Times has gone through so much downsizing and, and they seem to be at a kind of a state of equilibrium at the moment. And I love the New York Times, greatest newspaper in the world, but they were hemorrhaging jobs because the cost to buy a set of eyeballs online was one-tenth what they could charge for print. So you can imagine what that did to their business, right? It was like, all, and all of a sudden, there were a lot of places that you could buy the same audience. That was the right. other thing that was happening as a result of digital media, right? Because in the old days, where else could you buy that affluent, educated, sophisticated audience? but the New York Times, and they were the New York Times, right? The greatest, one of the greatest media brands in the history mm -hmm. of this country. So, but, you know, I was convinced that the revolution was coming, <laughs> you know, and, and we were going to tear down the walls and before they could figure it out. So, you know, that's what fueled my passion. There were fewer gatekeepers. It was much easier to get your 
work or anybody's to get their work in front of more eyeballs. But because of that, it also meant that there was a lot of more stuff going out in front of the same eyeballs, which meant it was harder to get money. Yes, uh, and because advertisers had their choice, right? Right. And the, and, so and, so as, 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 as a business, as, and, and, uh, Serious Seats, like how did you, what were your plans for tackling that problem, for, for attracting, I guess, the money to... I just figured if we continued to publish stories that I loved and believed in, whether I wrote them or you wrote them or somebody else wrote them, that we were building enough scale, not scale like Facebook scale or Microsoft scale or whatever, but enough scale that it would be appealing to advertisers, even though it would be by definition a niche buy. And every time I would hit a number in terms of traffic, they'd say, well, you need, you need, you need a million unique visitors a month to get big companies interested. And then I hit a million. I was like, no, 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 man. You need 3 million. Then I'd hit 3 million. No, no, no. You need 5 million if you want the Pepsis or Cokes or Budweiser's of the world. And then it, it would keep going up. It was like Lucy and, uh, with the football and peanuts. Every, every time I went to kick the football, somebody pulled the football back. Yeah. That was another problem. And then the last problem was... When I started Serious Seeds, Facebook was barely selling advertising. It started selling advertising in 2004. I started at the Mean Eats in 2005. They sold $474,000 worth of advertising in 2004. By 2014, when I decided that I had to sell Serious Seeds or that I wanted to sell Serious Seeds, Facebook was, I think, up to $14 billion. <laughs> So that, you know, and it's very hard to compete with that level of scale and targeting and all the things that Facebook can offer. Can you talk about the personal values that you had when you started Serious Seats and, and, and the sure. values that you wanted to bring to the business if those values ever had to change? Sure. I mean, I'm a proud red diaper baby. I don't know how many of you know what a red diaper baby is. So both my parents were grew up very, very poor in New York and went to City College, joined the Communist Party. So red diaper babies were children of those communists from the 30s. And so I grew up in a family of missionaries, like politically active. My mother wrote a column, a progressive feminist column for our local paper in 1963. So I grew up in this kind of environment. So I was not born and bred to be Jeff Bezos. Is he here? Okay. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. So when I went to hire people, those are the values I had. They were my parents' values. And so I tended to look for people that shared my values. Low prices and convenient service? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And he just says low prices because I paid him $25 a story <laughs> when I started. By the way, it was $5 more than I was paying everybody else. That's true. And so when I, when I was hiring people, I gravitated towards people who shared my values. That was one of the great pleasures because I'd never started a business before. And I turned out to be pretty good at identifying talent. It was... It actually was the most surprising thing that I 
derived the most satisfaction from in Series Eats was giving people like Kenji a launch pad and just saying, you know, if I would just say, Kenji, just write what you're passionate about because that's what, what, that's what I did at Serious Eats. And so, you know, but, but those values were often challenged, right? Because advertisers required TLC. They were, you know, sometimes they would ask that, you know, we'd write stories about their products and not label them as, you know, and these are things that, uh, digital publishers still face today, you know, sponsored content and, you know, everyone does sponsored and, content. And sponsored content, I mean, that when you started Serious Eats, that wasn't even a concept. No, that you know, but it was, it just developed. And now the New York Times does sponsored content and we do sponsored content and it's clearly labeled as such. But I remember more than one time when you and I would go out for coffee and really annoyed and you'd say I'm not for sale (laughs) so I was like what do you mean he goes do you want me to do a stories for the national about eggs for the national egg council you know or or whatever it could be could be any advertiser (laughs) the thing was is that I was kind of on their side and so that was the struggle Right, because I, I identified more with you right. and the other writers that I did. Because you were a writer. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you know, for me, it was just like yeah, he kind of has a good point here, you know. And so I was dealing with that challenge throughout the nine years I owned Serious Eats. You know, it was like, can I still hold these values? you know, and, and still make a success. You know, it's one of the greatest things about Serious Eats is that we did, you know, our values remain the same today, even with Fexi Media owning us as, as they have been when I owned it. And that's pretty great. It's pretty unusual. So, Thank you, Fexi Media. It's a miracle that you came along. (laughs) But it's also, I think it is good business in the end. But there's a lot of ways you can take a wrong turn. When you read your book, it reads like a a fiction novel. (laughs) It's true. Um, And I I mean, I don't know how much of that is because it is. But but it does read like one. my impression was that your your goal was always to get people to write stories as opposed to, you know, no matter what it was, whether it was about, like, yeah. eating a million tacos or cooking a thousand I wanted eggs, us all to be storytellers. Yeah, can you tell us your writing process? Sure. And your, so, I mean, for me, it was process. always, I love telling stories in every medium. I've had television shows and radio shows. And now I have a podcast. We have Serious Seats. And that music, was... Music producer, too. Yeah, and I was, that's right. Dr. John, may he rest in peace, I got to produce two solo piano records, which are really great, because I spent many years in the music business being a missionary for jazz and the blues before I was a missionary of the delicious. I never took a journalism class. I never even took a, a fiction writing class or anything, but I, was, I used to inhale newspapers. I read three newspapers a day growing mm-hmm. up. And so I understood the structure of a story. 
And so that's what I tried to get everybody to do. And it's one of your gifts. Is not, it's not just that you're this great and influential recipe developer, but you're a great storyteller. And that's what I look for. And that's what I, another thing that I think separates Serious Eats from other food blogs, from either from other food publications is we have really good storytellers and I, I take a lot of pride in that. And what's weird about the book is that I couldn't imagine in my wildest dreams that I could write a book length nonfiction narrative. And it is nonfiction, Kenji, okay? It's the <laughs> truth. But the, the weird thing is when I first started writing the book, I was like, I'm going to write a prescriptive business book. And then, you know, someone said, yeah, the subtitle would be how not to start a business. And, and so, you know, often when you write a book, and I don't know if this is true about Food Lab, it's like I really didn't know what the book was about until it was done. And yeah, it's like, same, same. Yeah, it's, and, and it's a weird thing. And it's almost, it is almost an alchemical process. And because you think you know where you're supposed to go and you're supposed to, you know, you're hitting all the beats you want to hit. And then all of a sudden you find yourself somewhere you never imagined being when you finish the book. And that's exactly what happened. The book was also a love story. I was trying to recreate a family that various reasons that when you read the book, you'll discover I lost with the staff. And it was a love story about my brother who adopted me and who was the first investor in Series Seats. And then it was also a love story about my wife because uh, I only give one piece of advice to anyone who gets married which is that you marry up and you hang on for dear life. <laughs> because I just wouldn't, I couldn't let Serious Eats die. You know, it was like eight roller coasters, but it was a nine-year roller coaster ride. What were you exactly risking? You can't borrow money if you're a small business without personally guaranteeing it. And in my case, that number kept growing. And they always tell you, you know, if you read any business book, and I even went to business school, I have an MBA. And they, they, they always tell you, never use your line of credit for operating expenses. I must have missed that class. <laughs> because that's what we constantly did. Well, first of all, I didn't have a choice. You know, and like the idea that a line of credit should only be for new initiatives, like, the only initiative we had was stay alive. <laughs> you know, that was, that was the new initiative. That was the old initiative. That was all the initiatives, like how to keep this thing alive. So, you know, and, and my wife was amazing because I literally was betting the ranch. I kept going to her and I said, oh, this is the last time I'm going to come to you to, to increase the line of credit. And I, I went up to her four or five times until she there's like, okay, this is really the last time. And I could tell that she meant it. And I just didn't want to put her through any more hell than I already had. 
the book is really for her. There's a few pages that I read that will explain what she did for me and how I tried to make it right. It was really hard. So here it is. With the deal really done, I had to take stock of the collateral damage Series Eats had done to my relationships with both Vicky and Mike. Mike's my brother, who died. The fight to keep Series Eats alive had been a grueling nine-year battle, and like most battles, it had left some wounds that still hadn't healed. I mistakenly thought at the time that the proceeds of the sale would wipe away all of Vicky's conflicted feelings about the whole Series Eats saga. The rewards were the risks, weren't they? But I couldn't wipe the slate clean. Why? Because when I learned about the relationship between risk and reward in business, no teacher at Columbia Business School spoke to the collateral, emotional, and psychological damage associated with the risks you take to reap the rewards. That damage, it turns out, is really difficult to repair. Vicky thought I didn't give credit where credit was due. She was wrong, maybe one of the only things she's been wrong about in 35 years of marriage. It was true that I couldn't entirely admit how instrumental she'd been, and it's true that I was too dumb to really give credit where it was due, but it's also true that I literally can't imagine what it would have been like to do this without her, and I'm keenly aware that it wouldn't have worked if she hadn't been on my side. In fact, the most harrowing details I've had to relive in writing this book have nothing to do with financial security, only the terrifying knowledge of how close I came to doing real damage to the relationship that made it all possible. For the nine long years that it took to get serious seats off the ground, in fact, long before that and after, I relied every single day on Vicky's solid judgment, her business savvy, her good counsel, her sense of humor, and her preternatural calm. Her unwavering belief in me was and is humbling. I do not for a moment downplay the difficulty of the situations I put her in or the tremendous sacrifice she had to make. Which isn't to say that I was any good at communicating any of this at the time. So we kept fighting. More than a year after I sold the business, we had yet another argument that ended without a resolution, neither of us giving an inch. I got on my bike and I rode to Tiffany. I'd never been inside Tiffany, so I had no idea what to do when I went through the revolving doors. I asked the person stationed right inside the door where I could buy pearl earrings for my wife. Vicky had been talking about how much she'd wanted a pair of pearl earrings for years, even before series seats. A kindly saleswoman showed me a variety of diamond and pearl earrings. I picked a pair out for Vicky. It's not a bad metaphor, a piece of grit in an oyster shell, a lot of work to make something that looks so effortlessly beautiful. She opened the box like a kid opening a present on Christmas morning. Vicky grinned from earring to earring as she walked over to a mirror to try them on. I almost started to cry, mostly out of frustration at myself. Why had it taken me so long to get to this place I obviously needed to be? Pride, stupidity, stubbornness, no matter. I made it. Let the healing begin. It continues to this day. That's... <laughs> That's the love story part of Serious Eats. It's great to be talking about Serious Eats and that it had a great outcome. And um, it was bought by this wonderful company, Fexi, based in Seattle. And we get to do what we do. And all the people that have come through Serious Eats have 
gone on to do great things like Kenji and and that's such a great pleasure. I think one of the moral of the story is that maybe you don't have to be a jerk to succeed in business, <laughs> you know, and I wouldn't change those nine crazy years for anything. That's actually what I was going to ask you. Would you, yeah. knowing like all the trouble you had during those nine years and especially the the problems you had at home and, and with your family, and I guess also the, the troubles you put your brother through for, you know, for his last years, like is there, do you think it was worth it? Yes, it was worth it, but I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> we, I once went to an engagement party for another former serious eater, former managing editor, Carrie Jones. And her father is a VC in the Valley, in the Silicon Valley. And as we were leaving the party, this is after we had sold the business, her father said to me, let me know if you want to start another business, Ed. I'll invest. And Vicky turned to him and said, he's not starting another business. <laughs> so I wouldn't do it again, but I also, I can't imagine not having done it. I don't know if that makes sense. It's yeah. sort of, it is the, it is the most terrifying and alternately thrilling thing I've ever done and also right. the most satisfying. So what, what is your, what is your secret sauce? I, I think, you know, <laughs> I think if anything, it was, it was this weird combination of optimism and resilience, you know, so I am wired to be an optimist and because of circumstances in my life that you'll all read about, I was sort of forced to be resilient well before anyone should have to be resilient. So it was that combination of optimism and resilience that got me through the crazy moments where I just, I just refused to lose, you know? And I remember I once had a meeting with um, a friend of mine, Maxwell, uh, Gillingham Ryan, who owns uh, Apartment Therapy, and he had a friend who was a banker, and he said, congratulations on the series. It was like 2011. We, it was nothing really to congratulate us on. It was, it was a good sight, but he asked me, he said, well, you know, what do you attribute your success to? And I said, well, I really like to win. And he said, you know what? That's bullshit. He said, everybody likes to win. It's the people that refuse to lose that most often get across the finish line. And I think if anything, the secret sauce is the optimism, the resilience, and the just crazy and irrational refusal to lose. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to put it. That's it. <laughs> That's the story of Serious Eats. You still have to read the book though. <laughs> I'm going to do your podcast questions to you. Your last meal with anybody living or dead? So no previous answers. Sonny Rollins has to be at, at, at my last supper. Okay. I don't know if uh, Sonny is still with us. He can't play anymore, but Sonny was my, one of my music heroes. I would say that Ella Fitzgerald would have to be at my last supper. Oh, I don't know how I used them before, but can I use like two people I used before? Sure. All right. So Nora Ephron, who wrote and directed Sleepless in Seattle, who is one of my writing heroes and um, 
participated in both a pastrami testing, tasting at Serious Eats and a biscuit tasting. If you go on the site, they're still on there. I just love Nora as a writer and as a human being. And then the other writer is Calvin Trillin. I tend to gravitate towards conversational, elegant writers. And what we'd be eating, you know, we'd probably be eating your smash burgers, Stella Park's cherry pie, maybe Gritzer's risotto, although your risotto is pretty good too, (laughs) I gotta say, and some barbecue... God, that's hard. Where would the barbecue be from? And th- there has to be some Chris Bianco pizza from Phoenix. I think and you only listed four people who were coming, by the way. I know, but it's, this is what it's like to eat with me, dude, okay? <laughs> and then maybe some Aaron Franklin brisket. I think we're out yeah. of time, but if anyone in the audience has questions. Hi, so uh, this question is to the both of you. Um, so I'm kind of curious if you could both share maybe one story or one concept that didn't make it into your books. Um, that you might have, in hindsight, wish you could have folded in. So when I started writing my books, um, I was a I was still freelance a freelance editor for Cooks Illustrated. They wanted to buy my book initially and give me a very bad offer. So I said no. And and part of their offer was that I would also have to stop writing for Serious Seats. Yeah, you, they said, oh yeah, and you can't write for Serious Seats anymore. Yeah, and so I told them no, and then uh, and ended up selling my book to another publisher who did allow me to continue working for Serious Seats. And so I got a letter from Cooks Illustrated, from their lawyers, actually telling me, here's the contract you had with us, like here are the things, subjects that you cannot write about because you like researched them while you were working for us. Very, very long list of things. Um, and so... I, you know, I took that to my to our lawyer and and went over it, and I was told that like most likely it was unenforceable, and and that they were just trying to threaten you. But like, uh, you know, it was like, all right, maybe I should stay away from most of these. And so, in the end, there's a whole chapter on cooking meat, um, and like the one technique that I guess like I'm was like is like my signature technique, the reverse sear, um, was something that I um, I developed while I was at Cooks Illustrated. So I decided like, all right, I'm just gonna leave it out. I won't I won't put it in there because I don't want to ruffle any feathers. And then, of course, like, there's many books and websites and stuff that, that have that printed now. And so, like, for, so for, for this period, it felt like, here's this technique that, like, I kind of came up with, and then everybody else in the world is allowed to write about it except for me. And so, in retrospect, I feel like I probably could have put that in there, and there's not much they could have said or done. And it would have been nice to have it in there because it's actually, like, a method that I prefer, and there's a lot to say about it, and I just, I just completely avoided it in the book. But all that information is on the website, so you don't even need it in the book. And it's all free <laughs> on the website. I think for me, my editor basically said, you can't put anything more about your days in the music business. <laughs> he said, this is, you know, it's, it should be more about serious seats than your time in the music business. But there were so many things in the music business, so many experiences in the music business that, that were amazing. And, and one of them was, there's this great, no longer with us, arranger, Gil Evans. Does anybody know Gil Evans? Uh, worked with Miles Davis on Sketches of Spain. Was one of the greatest arrangers in the history of the music. And <laughs> I got to know some of the members of Gil's band. And I was like, okay, I'm going to find Gil Evans' work. And so I tried to put together a tour and Gil's band was 17 pieces. I said to myself, gee, it's really hard. You know, I'm just going to ask Gil, could he go out on the road with 10 pieces instead of 17 pieces? I didn't realize it was, it was like asking 
Picasso to like to paint with one brush. You know, it was just one of these things where, and he just looked at me and he was, I don't know, he was about 70 at the time. And he was just like, why would you ask me a question like that? <laughs> so that was the answer. The Silicon Valley that was a rhetorical question. We'll pay you for question. 10 pieces, but you can still bring the 17. Right, <laughs> exactly. So they were all, whether it's musicians or, or, or food people, that I wanted to get up on a soapbox and tell the world about. So there, were, there are so many stories that didn't make it into the book. The book was supposed to be 75,000 words long. I handed in 125,000. It ended up being 90,000. So if you see me after the show, I can give you many stories that didn't make it into the book. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. Many thanks to Ed and Kenji for visiting us in Seattle and to Town Hall Seattle for inviting us in and sharing audio from the evening with us. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Serious Eater, and there are actually signed ones available on our website, and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.